Father, we love you so much tonight, and we're thankful that you not only hear the words that come out of our mouths, but you see that what is in our hearts that we could never put into words. Thank you for worship. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for understanding everything about us and about our needs, about our challenges in a way that no other person can understand. Thank you that you pity us. You realize that we're but dust, and you realize what we're in the middle of in this formidable trinity of the flesh and the world and the devil that comes against us and our relationship with you all day, every day, and throughout the week. And we pray that tonight as we turn to your word, you would raise the standard of your word and a beautiful way by your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives, any territory that's been captured this week by the enemy or the flesh or the world, that it would be reclaimed, Lord, and that you would continue that wonderful work of sanctification within our lives. We want every portion of our lives to be set aside unto you. And here we are experiencing Independence Day in the United States of America, and we realize that being conformed in the image of Christ is the only place that freedom and independence is found. And so we pray for that uh, uh, 4th of July uh, work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives tonight as we study your word. We're thankful that we don't have to do this alone, that we don't do this as a mere academic exercise, but we do it with you and your Holy Spirit. And we do it, Lord, out of a desire to commune with you, to hear your voice and to respond to it. And so speak to us now through your word, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. It wasn't much of a 4th of July um, response to my good evening to you. I'll give you one more chance. Good evening to you. There we go. All right. God allows second chances, doesn't he? So Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we've uh, ended in chapter 19. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and you just wave and get their attention. They'll put one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you personally uh, tonight. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. And then little children were brought to him by the parents that for the purpose that he might put his hands on them and pray. And this was the custom in Israel in those days is when there was a rabbi, a teacher, a religious leader that was considered to be significant and um, whose spirituality had impacted the parents, then they would want to bring the parent, the, the, their children to that rabbi for the rabbi to lay their hands on the child and then pray God's blessing upon the child. And that was... Uh, what, what they did, that God would sanctify the life of their child, that God would um, cause them to grow up holy and to live a holy and a free and a God-loving life. And so this was the heart of the parents in bringing their children uh, to Jesus and the hope that was in their heart. But they first ran into a wall 
kind of the secret service that the disciples apparently felt they were at this moment in time, and they proceeded to rebuke the parents. Now, um, most people don't like to be rebuked. Um, Parents really don't like to be rebuked. People don't like to be rebuked when they're attempting to do a good thing, and especially when they're attempting to do a good thing for their children. So this is like hitting all the wrong buttons in the hearts of very, very good people and very, very good parents. Jesus stepped in, and that word but is so important here. He steps in, understands what's going on, and he said, let the little children come to me. And I do think to give the disciples credit, they probably thought that uh, Jesus was a very busy man and uh, uh, busy, the God-man, but busy in his ministry. This was basically an adult ministry and so forth. And they were really going to screen off. It's like, just like he can only do so much, and we've got to start to protect him a little bit on this. And so they did it probably out of a, out of a good heart. Um, but Jesus said, allow the little children to come to me, and don't, don't forbid them. Let the children come to me, and don't forbid their parents in doing so. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he laid his hands on them, uh, on the children, blessed them, and he departed from there. On the Sunday mornings when we have the privilege of dedicating a baby, uh, it is, this is the same heart of a parent who uh, brings their child to be dedicated. This is the biblical basis for what we do. And here are um, uh, a, a father and a mother up on the stage, the platform, and they bring their child. And it is with the consciousness that we are in and of ourselves as human beings completely inadequate for raising this child in the way that a, a child ought to go. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. We want God to be very involved in uh, the raising of this child. It's a time to acknowledge the fact on the part of the parents that this child belongs to God first and foremost, far before our children ever become ours. They belong to Him. Our children are a gift to us, to our family, but it is, they are also a gift to human history. They come into the world with a plan attached to them. And so, Jesus isn't present in physical form today in order to uh, do that related to the children, but uh, what is in His place? Certainly the Holy Spirit, but through whom? Uh, through the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ as Christians. So on the Sunday morning, then, when we take that child and I, on behalf of all of you, then dedicate this child to the Lord, asking for their salvation, desiring Jesus' blessing upon their life, we are simply continuing what it is that Jesus has done here. It is a, a beautiful thing as Jesus speaks in all of this. If you're only going to <laughs> do one thing right in your whole life, as a parent, uh, the one thing to get right is to bring that child to Jesus. And uh, you can mess up on everything else, and you get that one right, and God will add a lot to that. It's interesting so often where you see um, a young uh, uh, mother and father, husband and wife, they have a child, 
and uh, sometimes not raised in the things of the Lord or maybe raised in the things of the Lord in their childhood on some uh, not a deep level yet in their lives. And so often it's when a child is in their arms. It has come from their union, and, and here's this responsibility. Now, you think about it. All you, know, all you really need to do to have a child is to, for the conception to occur and to be able to get into hospital if you can do that, and then all of a sudden there's the baby, and in one or two days, bye. And then now here's this incredible thing that hits parents, and, and necessarily so, properly so the realization, what in the world are we going to do now? Everything up to this point has been comparatively easy. I've got an eternal human being now, and I am now going to fashion them physically, emotionally, mentally, and attempt to prepare them for adult life. And it's no wonder that so often at that point, parents who are thinking will say to themselves in some course of revelation, we got to get to church or we've got to get back to church. We realize that, uh, that we need God's help in this family that is, uh, is uh, be, you know, coming into being and growing and so forth. And so then they come to church and they want their children raised in the things of the Lord. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and it's a very, very um, important thing. Every time you bring your children uh, to church, and they get checked into those classrooms, and they get ministered to, VBS coming forward. You are bringing your children to Jesus in order for them, for Jesus to bless them. And he always blesses them. Every single time, he blesses them. I have a younger sister named Grace. Wonderful name, isn't it? <laughs> and she lives up to her name. She's tremendous. And uh, so, uh, Grace, we, she lived for a part of her, the latter part of her um, youth with Karen and I and our two daughters, and um, we would take Grace to church, and it looked like nothing was penetrating, absolutely nothing. I mean, I don't know what kind of a label they would put on her today. You know, this was a while back. But it, she'd be, you know, moving around and looking and looking down at her knee and who knows what and everything. And then you'd go out into the car and talk about what it was that got taught that evening, and she knew it inside and out. I remember when my mom used to take uh, my twin brother and I and my two sisters to church, um, and it looked like nothing was penetrating. We, we would take the money we were supposed to put in the offering, we would go over to Lawler's Liquors, and we'd buy candy. And then we'd be in that adult sanctuary, and we would crinkle and crackle all of that paper to get that, you know, the nutty buddies out or the whatever, you know, the stick of honey or whatever, all of the uh, chiclets and whatever the little round ones. Anyway, the, it was just an awful mess. And I'm sure, I mean, we weren't fooling anyone, that it, and it looked like nothing was happening in our lives. But my mom would get us there. And I'll tell you, uh, every one of us that were raised in that household at that time came to know the Lord and are walking with the Lord today. God blesses it, and he uses it. My mom, didn't, my mom had a very difficult life, her adult life especially difficult, and uh, she didn't get a lot right. And it wasn't that fun of a childhood, but she got this right. She got us into church. 
and around the things of the Lord, and God blessed it. The greatest thing we can do for our children is to bring them to the Lord for his blessing and to involve them in a local church. God will honor that. It's interesting to me, I've seen a trend over the last uh, 36 years since I've been walking with the Lord. It continues to accelerate mostly in the last 15 years as the culture has become more entertainment-oriented, uh, more sports-oriented, more even family-oriented and these kind of things. And I have seen the competition that the culture has become uh, to uh, parents, Christian parents, raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and bringing them to Jesus. I think it's important, and so often I've seen men and women who were raised by their parents in the things of the Lord, in their childhood, and here they've been given this rich foundation in this, their life, this sure foundation in their life to then be able to navigate all of the problems that they're going to face in life and the problems of the world. And their parents built that into their life. And then here, more recently then, these same two people that are kind of raised in that way will then have children. And then pretty soon, they become spotty in bringing their children uh, to church. They stop going to church at all. And, uh, and now they've on these traveling athletic teams, and then they're going over to this on the weekend and that on the, this weekend and over here and this. And then pretty soon... That whole childhood is gone, and the narrow window that is childhood is gone, but their children now are facing a world that is far more dangerous than the one that they were raised in, far more temptations, far more dangerous not only physically but spiritually. And what somebody took the time to build into their life in a time when things were safer, they have now, and they know better, and they knew better, they have failed to do that in their children. And I just, I say it because, not just because it's a pet peeve of mine, and I'm not saying because it is a pet peeve of mine, I wouldn't bring it up for that case, but because it's accelerating, and it's, it's awful. How many of you, don't shout out, how many of you still think in your mind you are 18 years old or 17 years old or 20 years old? A childhood is a very, very finite period of time, and it is a very, very formative time in a person's life. Their child, a person's childhood could be almost horrible every single day, and yet there will be something of that childhood that they will look back fondly upon for the rest of their life. And so much gets set into play and into place in youth and in childhood. And when that window is lost for the kingdom, something uh, priceless has been denied to children. It is probably the most influential period in a human being's life, and God intends that the foundation of the things of the Lord and the Word of God will be built into their lives. And it's every parent's responsibility, uh, Christian parent's responsibility, to then do that. And so I say by way of encouragement, but also exhortation, as this pressure continues 
to compartmentalize Christianity, to take our Christianity and make it as convenient as it possibly can be, that there's no sacrifice that's involved in it. All of these things, even family, get elevated above the things of the Lord. It is a terrible recipe, and it is to have everything backwards, and it needs to be resisted. The greatest thing we can do for our children is to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to bring them to the Lord. What they do with that, we have no control over it. But we have promises concerning how powerfully God will try to use that in their life if it's there. It's another thing to fail to put it in there. And we don't want to be in that place. I don't want you feeling guilty and you're going to sink down in your seat if you blew that window. But sometimes I have to address and, and a person in my position things that uh, everybody didn't get right, but it needs to be addressed for people that are on the front end of that so they can then uh, do that right. And so it's so important. I think about in this same vein, I and, I, and here I'm going to probably get in trouble a little bit. I'm like the Apostle Paul, where, you know, in the early church there were people that were talking about, well, Sunday's the day to worship, or no, the Sabbath, Saturday's the day to worship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One's more holy than the other, and all. And the Apostle Paul said, listen, some people think one day is greater than another. Other people think another day is greater than another. Great. Be firmly convinced in your own mind. He said, I think every day's the same. They're all great days to worship the Lord. Uh, one of the reasons that we worship on Sunday is it was the practice of the early church, but it's also the day when most people have off. And so they have the freedom then, and historically, I mean, everything shut down on Sundays, you know, 50 years ago, uh, 40 years ago in the United States. And so it was a day that was given uh, uh, to that. And so Sunday is the day to meet. And then, you know, some time ago, uh, Saturday night services began to come into place. And, of course, they're wonderful for people who work on Sundays because then they can go to a Saturday night service in a church. I'm not down on that uh, philosophically or by terms of principle. But if we as the church are establishing Saturday night services so that Christians can put God and the things of God in the most costless and least sacrificial part of their life that they possibly can shoehorn him into some hour and a half that is most convenient in the course of the week. Now, that's a disaster. And I'm not saying, that, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that people that use Saturday nights, I'd start a Saturday night next Saturday if I felt like the Lord wanted us to do it. I'm not against that. But what I see is me, I, my becoming prevalent, the sacrifice that a Christian is, Christians are willing to make in order to give God his due place within our lives, to obey him even when it is sacrificial uh, in a small way or in a big way. This is something that is ebbing currently in our culture, and we need to be aware of it. This relationship with God is to, supposed to involve the totality of our life and the greatest and the highest portions of our life. So don't go out and say, Pastor Damien hates Sunday night services. You know I didn't say that. But what I'm saying is, 
if, if, it's, if it is this thing where, yeah, you know, we can go out, we can have a nice dinner, and then, uh, you know, get the Saturday night service in and then have the whole Sunday for ourselves the next day, I don't know that that's a great trend. And I don't know that that's a great way to raise the next generation necessarily. Christianity continues to become more and more self-focused and man-focused in these last days. And these are the kind of things that, you know, reflect it. And so the importance here of giving this its due, if we don't get anything else right in raising our children, uh, let's bring them to the Lord, and he will be faithful to make much of it. Now, behold, one came, and uh, Jesus is now, remember, making his way to Jerusalem. He's in the final weeks of his life before his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's walking along a road with the disciples toward Jerusalem, and as he's doing so, uh, one came and said to him, and we know from Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, this is a young man known as the rich young ruler. He is young, he is extraordinarily wealthy, and he is a ruler. He is powerful. He possesses all of the things that are supposed to make a person feel uh, satisfied in life, that they found fulfillment and meaning in life, and yet he has these things kind of to the nth degree, and there is still something missing in his life, and he recognizes it. And, and as uh, the old saying is, until we are engaged in what we have been created for, and that is a relationship with God, there will always be a sense that there is something more to life than what we've experienced. Because there is something more to life than we have experienced, and that is a relationship with God. And it isn't just something more to life, it is the thing in life without which nothing in life will make sense. And so here he comes, this rich young ruler, and he said to Jesus, good teacher, he describes Jesus uh, as a good teacher, he said, what good thing shall I, and then circle in your mind at least, uh, that next word do, what good thing shall I do that I may have everlasting life? So he is under uh, the impression that everlasting life or eternal life is something that a person achieves by doing. The world that you and I live in today, that is the predominant view of the world. How do you get to heaven? You just do a little more good than bad. It's on the basis of doing, being a good person, and so forth. And uh, he is, though raised in a very religious environment, he has the idea a person gets into heaven by doing, so he poses the question to the greatest teacher that he knows at the time, and that is Jesus. And you can be fully sure that he takes out his iPad and he is ready for Jesus to give him the hundred things or the ten things or the three things that he needs to do so that he can know that when the day comes that he dies, he will have everlasting life in heaven. So that's the question that he poses. So he's not only rich, he's not only young, He's not only uh, a ruler, but he happens to be uh, a very, very wise. He happens to be a thinking person. He's thinking about everlasting life. He's thinking about the meaning of life. Again, how many people are thinking about what does it mean? What is life about? And so forth. And here is a guy, rich, young ruler. He's a thinker, but he is also wise because he brings this question to the person who is uniquely qualified to answer of that question, and that is Jesus himself. So he poses the question, and it's a fabulous question because it is the most important question anyone will ever ask in life. This life is a vapor. 
Listen, when you're in your teens and you're in your 20s, it doesn't seem like a vapor. Uh, A little bit later, it seems like a vapor. It moves very quickly. Eternity is a long time. And so everlasting life, being on the right side of eternity in heaven, that is the most important uh, question in life. This life is soon uh, very much past. Eternity is forever and ever. So Jesus says to the rich young ruler, he says, why do you call me good? There is uh, no one is good uh, but one that is God. And so the uh, teaching of the rabbis in those days was that only one person was truly uh, good, you know, empirically good, inside and out, and that was God. Another human being, we could describe them as good uh, compared to other people, but not compared to perfection. Only God can be called good if you're going to compare Him to perfection. And so uh, the, the teaching was that only God was truly good. And so Jesus comes here, and uh, notice He doesn't say to the man, don't call me good. He doesn't say that at all. He poses the question for, what's your motivation? What are you thinking that you ascribe goodness to me? Uh, I, and and, uh, and that's, that's what he's wanting to get from him. And then he, he reiterates to him what he already knows is the teaching of the day, no one is good that is truly good but one, and that is God. I think another thing that Jesus is doing here is he knows exactly what he's going to say to this young man. And so he's asking him, listen, you call me good, uh, and perhaps you even view me as divine in, in all of this, but it's one thing to consider me to be good, but are you willing now to listen to the answer uh, to the question that you have posed to me? It's easy to think very highly of a person until you pose a question to them or make a request of them, and then they don't tell you what you want to hear. Now they're not so good, are they? That's the way that it works. So Jesus is saying, before I give you the answer, do you consider to me be to be good or not in this? And will you still consider me to be good no matter what answer I give to you? Now, again, he brings his question to the, to the highest authority, and, and it's fabulous uh, in that regard. And so Jesus is going to answer his question after dealing with this. And he said, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. All right. You want to get into heaven by doing? All right. There's a way you can do that. Keep the commandments. Well, the problem is, is that in the law of Moses, there's 613 commandments. And if you do want to get into heaven by doing, all you have to do is keep all 613 of those commandments from your first breath out of your mother's womb to your dying death on your breath on your deathbed, and then you're in. How many of you have made it? How many of you stole a cookie when you were a kid? How many of you told a lie? How many of you took a quarter, stole a candy bar? What, I'm in a kind of a stealing mode here, aren't I, in terms of illustrations? Who's in the room here? Jesse James? Yes, I see that hand. But there's the recognition that we're all sinners, and uh, we are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by practice. He's got us nailed both directions on this. Nobody can argue with that. 
So nobody can get into heaven by keeping the commandments. And so he says, all right, you everlasting life on the basis of doing? Simple, keep the commandments. Well, the young man, he's smart, and he said to Jesus, he, he knows it's, that's big, he knows there's 613 commandments, and so he said, which ones? Can you narrow it down for me? And Jesus said, and he begins to quote the, the second tablet of the law of Moses. When, the law of Mo, when God gave the law of Moses to Moses, the first tablet contained the first four commandments that had to do with man's relationship with God, our vertical relationship. The second tablet, made up of six commandments, had to do with man's relationship with his fellow man. And so Jesus here now quotes all of the commandments that were found on the second tablet. And so he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he lays out all the commandments on the second tablet. And then the young man said to him, all of these I have kept from my youth. <laughs> he's not only rich, he's not only young, he's not only powerful, but he's moral. Way beyond how moral I was. He says, I have kept all those commandments from my youth, from the time of my bar mitzvah, when I was 12 years old and became a man in the Jewish culture. This is an extraordinary young man. And then he says, what do I still lack? And he has that sense that so far he's been everything that Jesus has laid out here, and yet he knows he's still as empty as can be. He's still searching for the meaning of life. And then Jesus said to him, and what Jesus says to him, Jesus says to him. There's a principle here. But what he declares to this young man about taking all that he owns, selling it, and then giving those riches to the poor, he does not tell every single Christian to do that. The grammar in this passage, when it talks about Jesus said to him, and then further, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. All of that, the grammar is that Jesus is speaking to this individual young man that is in front of him. This is not a principle that is to be uh, put out broadly before the, uh, you know, that's something that every Christian has to do in order to be saved, sell everything that they have, take the proceeds, give it to the poor, and, uh, and then uh, follow after Jesus. But Jesus then says to him as the conversation continues, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And, uh, and that's the declaration that he makes to him. And then he gives him the actual means by which a person is saved when he said, and come and follow me. And how is a person saved? It is by coming to Jesus and that recognition in my life, at some point in my life, that I am a sinner, that my sin has separated me from a relationship with God, but that God loved me so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for my sins, is the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins, and then I put my faith in the Savior that pleases heaven and pleases the Father. And when I do that now, the Holy Spirit comes into my life 
and I become one of Jesus' disciples, his followers, and now the rest of my life is to be spent following him. And so that's how we uh, gain everlasting life. We receive it actually as a gift by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. When he tells this young man to take and sell all that he has and give it to the poor and then uh, he'll have treasure in heaven, he is essentially putting his finger on the one thing in this young man's life that is going to keep him from ever doing that. And essentially this young man is in violation, though not in violation of the second tablet of the law, but he is in violation of the first tablet of the law, indeed the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is here testing this man's young man's heart for God. Do you love God enough? Are you willing enough to follow him? And, to receive, and put your faith in him and receive everlasting life to be willing to get rid of the one thing that will always keep you from putting your faith in me, and that is in your riches. For this young man, it was his riches that would keep him from becoming a disciple of Jesus. We're going to see in a moment that he never says, okay, I'll do that and I'll follow you. Jesus put his finger exactly on the single great obstacle that this man would need to repent of in order to follow him. And then the man has to do something with that. For the rest of us, when we came to know the Lord, it's one of the great lost words of salvation today, and that is the word repentance. What Jesus did to this rich young ruler, he does in every one of our lives. When there is that call upon us, and here we are, we're in the mess that we're in or the emptiness that we're experiencing, and we realize there has to be something more to life than what we've experienced, and we are told that we need to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and trust in him for everlasting life. But when Jesus began his public ministry, the first words out of his mouth were, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In order to follow Jesus and become his disciple, I must repent of anything that will be a hindrance to that, anything that would compete with my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength in that relationship. For him, it was his riches. For other people, when they hear the gospel, there is the realization, I must repent of my sexual immorality, or I must repent of my uh, drug use, or my alcohol use, or my gossip, or my lying, or whatever it might be. Everybody must repent. And repentance means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in in life, to have a change of mind that results in a change of direction where God wants to take me in life and where my flesh wants to take me in life are in two entirely different ways. To follow God, I must repent. And that's what he's calling on this young man to do, to repent of the one thing that Jesus knew, the single greatest thing that he knew that would be the obstacle to coming and becoming Jesus' disciple. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And this is interesting. You've got to give him credit for being honest. He didn't tell Jesus something that he felt Jesus wanted to hear. He asked the question of Jesus. Jesus gave him the answer, and the full weight of it 
hits him. He gets it. He gets it. He understands. And now there's this battle going on in his heart. He realizes, I am by virtue of what this rabbi, this master has done to me, is he has exposed the thing in life that I love more than God by virtue of the fact that I will not lay it down to follow God. He gets all of that. This is one sharp guy. But in that moment, he's not willing to do that. And I trust that he uh, was willing to do it later on in his life. But there's no happy ending to this particular uh, story. And Jesus then said to the disciples, boy, do you think I was a little hard on that young guy? And he began to kind of wring his hands and feel remorse. And wow, we're never going to get anybody to be a follower if I just keep talking. Like There is no angst in his heart. There's no anxiety. Jesus doesn't look at anything, even if a person owns all of the wealth in the world. If it is keeping me from everlasting life, then it's an enemy to me. And all this young man can do is think about what he is having to give up in order to receive everlasting life. And he's having to give up all of these resources that he has in the uniqueness of of, uh, of his life, but what he's losing sight of is, sure, you do all of that and put your faith in Christ, but look at what you've gained, everlasting life, eternal life. And so often that's the funny thing in our lives. And so often when we're witnessing with people about repentance, no, you can't continue to do that and be a Christian. You're going to have to give that up and follow him. And it's like, oh, this is the biggest sacrifice I have to make to give up this sin. No, 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 don't, don't look at it that way. Look at what you're gaining. It's not that you're, oh, I have to give up fornication. You are gaining everlasting life. And I mean, all this other stuff's going to be gone in an instant. And again, as we've said earlier, eternity is forever. Jesus does not feel any remorse at all in making it clear to any of us of what is a danger to us of ever one day standing on that glassy sea in heaven and being there forever and ever. And Jesus said to the disciples, verily, verily, or assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I think he said it with a sigh. I think it was just like the guy, the young, rich young ruler is gone. It's harder for a rich man uh, to, it, it, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And apparently he's seen it over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it's that same blind spot that this rich young ruler had. The more you have, the more a person, is, a person has in their life and they realize, I'm going to put my faith in Christ and all that I am and all that I have is going to become his and under his control. And there is that immediate consciousness of how much I have and how valuable it is. And, and that gobbles up my whole mind rather than realizing uh, that uh, what, I am, uh, what I am receiving as a result of faith in Christ is everlasting life. And it's harder for a guy uh, that is a multimillionaire 
to make that decision and truly submit to the headship of Christ and the lordship of God in their life than someone who has 250 bucks, you know, in a sock in their uh, top drawer of the bureau. Uh, it, it, you know, there's, it was like, wow, he's taken me on with all of my liabilities and all I got to do is put 250 bucks in his hands to see how he wants me to spend it or whatever it would be the comparative illustration. It's a lot easier. I mean, sometimes it's such, a, such a, uh, an envy of the rich today. And uh, there is this uh, class warfare that is uh, kind of formally being uh, introduced and in, in that, that fire is being uh, stoked up within American culture today. Um, I never, ever envy the rich. I don't. I mean, I wouldn't mind an extra million or two, uh, just like the, the rest of you. But the responsibility that comes with that, the temptations that come with that, I remember a loved one within my family who ultimately came to know the Lord, and, uh, and uh, he later on said he worked minimum wage jobs and all until he, uh, you know, kind of got going with the Lord and everything, and he said, I'm, I'm glad I never had any more money than I had. I almost killed myself with the amount of money I had. If I'd have been rich, I don't know what I'd have done. The doors that are opened in terms of temptation are incredible, the addiction to comfort and to riches and so forth. Uh, don't envy. Jesus didn't envy. Pray, pray, pray for people that you know are in that category. It is harder for them than it is for most of us. And Jesus said, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, it used to be in Israel there was this fable about there being a gate into Israel, and it was called the eye uh, of the needle gate. And that uh, when you wanted to come in through that gate, when all of the other gates were closed in Jerusalem, it was necessary for the camel to get down on its knees and then with the burden make its way through and then into the city and so forth. And it represents the necessity of submission and humility and so forth. You know, it's a great story. The problem is, is it's not true. So when Jesus speaks here about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and I, uh, for those of you who have sewn a little bit, it doesn't matter, I haven't seen a needle that makes this easy yet. And, and so easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can get a camel through the eye of a needle. You've got to grind him up so fine, and it takes so long to just squeeze him right through that. It takes months in order to do it. But it, it's a, it is an expression of the day that uh, implied impossibility. And, and, and so uh, Jesus said, uh, it's impossible here in essence, near impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples, they heard it, they were greatly astonished. And they said, well, then who can be saved then? And they had in their days, sometimes we think the prosperity doctrine is a new doctrine, the idea um, that if you have enough faith and you're spiritual enough, you will be rich, you will be healthy, you will be all of these things. This is as old as the sun. And uh, 2,000 years ago, among the rabbis, uh, there was the teaching that those who were rich were especially godly because look at how God is blessing them. 
And so the disciples, this is what they've been indoctrinated in. This is how they view rich people. It's a mark of God's favor and their spirituality. And so they look and say, wow, if people is spiritual and, and, and is favored by God, as rich people can't be saved, then who in the world can be saved? And uh, Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are impossible. Uh, uh, all things are possible. Every one of our salvation is a miracle. Uh, it, it was impossible for us to be saved in and of ourselves. God has done that. Uh, but evidently, it is even even harder thing for a rich, uh, a rich person. But God has in any situation, anyone in any circumstance that wants to turn to him can be saved, and God is drawing all people equally to himself on a daily basis and to faith in the Lord. Now, when Peter, he hears uh, all of this, and he answers, and he says to the Lord, see, uh, we have left all uh, and followed you, therefore, what shall we have? And so, Peter here, he's uh, kind of uh, a carnal here and all that, that he's… Um, hearing and everything, and he thinks, all right, well, you know, this, this rich young ruler, he walked away. He wasn't willing to follow after you. We've left everything. We've followed you, and therefore, what shall we have? Everlasting life. Come on, Peter. He's wanting like some mules in a little house on a wall in Jerusalem or some kind of whatever. What do you want? You got everlasting life, buckaroo. Be happy. And so, I mean, and that's the thing. True riches, uh, Paul wrote, is godliness with contentment is great gain. The truly rich person is the person who is born again and then is content with what God decides in his sovereignty to add to our life. That's a rich person. Because that's a person who knows peace, he knows contentment, she knows contentment. These are things that make people rich without rich, which you can have all the money in the world and not be, be rich, truly speaking. So Peter, he comes down to this whole level, and it's like, man, he's just thinking, you know, when, do, when are you going to, like, uh, wire some money into our accounts or something in light of the sacrifice that we've made to leave all and follow you. <laughs> Therefore, what shall we have? <laughs> I just laugh. You've got everlasting life. Oh, sorry you had to live, leave your fishing industry and smelling like fish for the rest of your life and all to, you know, make this sacrifice. And in all fairness, they did make a sacrifice and would make the ultimate sacrifice to follow the Lord. But he's all goofed up in his thinking and all. He's no different than me. I'm not putting him down. It's just that I say these things because I feel the emotion of what's in the passage, and I recognize it. And so Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me uh, will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, Peter, here's what you, you know, the reward, having left all and following after me, being faithful to your call as an apostle in the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, you will be among those who rule and reign with me, subservient to Jesus, and as his servants during the kingdom age. And each of the apostles will. Uh, they'll have the privilege of 
of, of doing that. And then Jesus moves on uh, from uh, speaking to them specifically as apostles and says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, anyone that's ever made a sacrifice that it's cost us something to walk with God and to obey Him and to serve Him, he said, then uh, th- that they shall receive a hundredfold, speaking of in this life, and inherit everlasting life. The blessing of being born again into a family and uh, into the body of Christ, into the family uh, of God, and all of the love that is found there, all of the resources that are found there, and then on top of all of that, after this life is through, everlasting life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And in this, he refers back to the rich young ruler. In this life, everybody would look at him and say, that guy is first, man. He rolled through life, first cabin, that was first class, and wow. And then, and yet in this life, so often, someone that is in that category, in the life to come, they will be last. And those that were uh, had so little and, uh, you know, eked out some, in some central plain in Africa, the meal that they were going to eat, not were going to, but are today going to eat uh, for dinner for their family, and yet they have a faith in Christ, then they will be rich beyond uh, belief and expression in heaven. Things will flip. Things will change. It will be a lot of surprises in that uh, that, that change that occurs with death or, and, uh, or the rapture of the church when we move into eternity, and it gives uh, people hope. Things will then be rewarded. This world is not a fair world, and it's not a fair world in how it rewards and what it rewards and so forth, but God will be completely fair. And in the age to come, in uh, eternal life, things are going to be just right, the reward. There won't be people that will have a certain gene pool and it opens doors for them or they're uh, descendants of a certain name or family and it will open doors up for them that nobody else gets opened up and so forth. Everything will be truly fair in terms of how things are rewarded and how things are seen uh, in eternity. We'll stop there tonight and we'll pick it up in chapter 20 um, next time. Let's have the worship team come forward. There's a lot that's here and, um, and just an opportunity.